We won the Emmy for that one. Daytime Emmy. <laughs> I checked. The trophy's the same size. Hello, welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. I'm delighted to bring you this episode. I'm delighted that the midterms are over so that we get a little bit of a break. And I just say little break because social activism, unfortunately, cannot end. However, I am thrilled to bring you this episode with two extraordinary human beings. Our first guest, Chris Jackson, is a musician, an actor, and a composer. He's an Emmy and Tony Award winner. You may know him from Hamilton or In the Heights, as well as on CBS's Bull. But we also spoke about what it was like to compose the music for Sesame Street with Bill Sherman and how that was his day job for a while. And Chris Jackson is part of Freestyle Love Supreme. They are part of my band. They are my Employee of the Month house band. And I want to just do a special shout out to them. You're going to get to hear music from them and you will probably need to run, not walk, to go see them perform live in the winter. But you can see them even sooner, December 1st at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Employee of the Month show is going to be live. Check them out. Come see them come see me. I mean, as if we need anything else, but also it's going to be super fun. And before we get started, I want to also say thank you to the Kennedy Center, which is where my interview with Chris Jackson was recorded live. Thank you to the DC Comedy Festival as well. And our second guest, Selena Sue, who has been deemed the future of English poetry, is a professor and poet. And while she is very modest and doesn't say she's a social organizer, she did help co-found the Burmese Refugee Project, uh, which helps Burmese refugees in Thailand, and you can check them out online as well. And we talked about political organizing as well as her incredible, exceptional poetry. So let's get started. We'll start out with Chris Jackson. Here he is. So was it uh, when you auditioned for In the Heights that you met Lynn Manuel Miranda? Because you guys are really close. Okay, I so I you. have not auditioned for in the either In the Heights or Hamilton. Okay. Um, the the when I met Lynn, how did you know when when to show up? And it where? was a a, a a friend of mine I went to college with had had auditioned and met Lynn and Tommy and Bill and the whole gang. Uh, I had left. I was doing Lion King on Broadway at the time. I left. I sort of went on a little miniature sabbatical and came back from Chicago. And you were Simba, right? Yeah, yeah. When I was, yeah, you know, no, no big deal, killing myself. And so I, I got back to New York, or I was about to leave for New York the next day, and I got a phone call from my friend Janae. It was like, I just met these guys. They're great. They're writing a hip-hop show, and he's really, they're young, and they're hip, and it's really, really cool. And I was like, okay. But they want, you should meet them, because they need someone in their, in their reading. I was like, all right, I'll do that. I'm fine. And I got back to New York, and the next day, uh, met Tommy Kale, but didn't know that I was meeting Tommy Kale, and didn't know that he looked like he was 15 at the time. <laughs> I was just going to going in to show face and see my friend and hopefully she could give me a, a dollar fifty so I could get back on the subway and go home because I was broke. I spent all that road money. <laughs> um, and so a few days later, I went down to the basement of the drama bookshop and met Lynn Miranda and Tommy Kale was there. So that was a bit odd and awkward. And then I just sort of, you know, we, he handed me a sheet of paper and said, can you wrap this? And I was like, show me how it goes. And he showed me and I did it and... I've been, you know, with them ever since. And how did you guys get involved with Electra Company, which was a, a reboot of a beloved children's show on PBS? We had done an off-Broadway run at Ars Nova, Freestyle of Supreme yeah. had, and the exec producer for Electra Company had come to the show and said, hey, you guys are fun. Why don't you help us do a proof of concept? We want to reboot the Electra Company. 
so we did, and you know, then it happened. Can we see the baby picture of, of look, look at that face. That suit, ooh, that's a JCPenney special. You are in an all-white suit. Looking what you great. guys are a witness to, that's my older sister before she hated me. And that suit, I grew up between two churches. I went to St. Paul AME Church and Oak Grove Presbyterian Church on alternating Sundays. And this is in Illinois. This is in Southern Metropolis, Illinois. And my grandparents were undertakers. Wow. Black undertakers, like second mayors. But that suit... You know, kids don't like wearing, you know, real button shirts and, you know, clip on ties and things like that. But it was Easter Sunday. The next, like, that was the suit I wore for Easter Sunday. And at Oak Grove Presbyterian Church, it gets really hot. And in the afternoon service, they let all the kids outside because they get tired of beating us through the first service. And so they let us go outside with our older cousins and, and play to, you know, not disrupt the service. And there's a hill right by the church and it's a cemetery which is crazy but i start we all started rolling down the hill <laughs> but my cousins that. put me up to it and i'm wearing a white suit so that was that was that the was scene good. and then a few days later I, I got beaten i didn't walk for a while <laughs> i messed I'm, up a suit that was I'm, from jc penny okay so did it did it feel good <laughs> this is gonna be my segue did it feel good to then be able to work on sesame street and heal those childhood yes. wounds <laughs> you see how it all happens <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit because you helped, I, I believe, compose the music. I wanted to find out what your role was on, on the uh, writing side of, of Sesame Street, music-wise. So uh, I, along with Bill Sherman and Tommy Kale, were co-music supervisors for Electric Company, which Shock was one of the stars of. And these, all these guys were together in Freestyle Love Supreme, still are. Yeah, all crew. And then after that ended, Bill Sherman kind of assumed the uh, music supervisor role for all things Sesame. And so I would, you know, as time would permit or not permit, I just kept, you know, grinding and, and writing as many songs as I could. So that you could ride the subway in both directions. Yes, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Have more than $150, pretty much. $1.50 in your pocket. Yeah, yeah pretty much. Um, I, brought, I wanted to show a quick clip of Will I Am, because I believe you did the music on this. I wrote the lyrics for it. I yeah. wrote the lyrics yeah. for it. Yeah. For, for those who don't know of Sesame Street, I'm sorry to hear that. But I'd love to show a little brief snippet from it, if we can. There's only one me, I admit. Have a dream, I'll follow it. It's up to me to try. Oh, I'ma keep my head up high. Keep on reaching high. Never gonna quit. I'll keep it stronger. When you write the lyrics for something like that, are you writing for the... Muppets themselves? Are you writing for the singer? How does it work? It really just depends. For this, we wanted to write something that was upbeat and fun because Will I Am is, you know, bringing the positivity, y'all. And so that's what we were just trying to write for something for. Wasn't it? What's that? That was nominated for an award. The other one. No, we're, we're, we won the Emmy for that one. Yeah, 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 yeah it was pretty cool. Emmy um, Day, daytime Emmy. <laughs> I checked. I checked this. The trophy's the same size. <laughs> Sitting right on my mantle. <laughs> and if you turn it just so, you don't see daytime anything. <laughs> daytime. See, that's such inside baseball. <laughs> Snark. People get... <laughs> <Love it. laughs> daytime Emmy 2011 for Outstanding Song, Original Song for a Children's Series. And it is 
I can't stop singing it because it's. I know so that because it says that on the little plaque of the, <laughs> my my daytime Emmy. I'm gonna have to go back and change my bio now. <laughs> daytime Emmy award winning. <laughs> All right, so we're going to cut to one of your other profound issues. First of all, you were actually nominated for other Emmys for some of the Sesame Street stuff as oh, well. Oh, only six daytime Emmy nominations. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you did a lot of wonderful songs for them. So you're writing all of these award-winning, critically acclaimed songs, and when does Hamilton start? Hamilton starts on stage at the Richard Rogers Theaters during a performance of In the Heights. When Lynn comes back from that fateful vacation, and, and we're in the, for those of you that are familiar with the show, there's a section where Benny and Usnavi, our characters, go into the bodega while the ladies of the salon come out and do their little, you know, uh, song. And while we're, you know, while we're on stage, we had, you know, three minutes or so, and we would have like life conversations. It'd be like, you know, I have IBS. What are you, or you have IBS? What are you going to do? I have a hangnail. I didn't sleep last night. My what dog, do you do for the IBS? My dog has syphilis. It's <laughs> just weird. That was a really weird poster. What do, you do, what do you do for the IBS? I, I, it wasn't me. It was Lynn. Lynn okay. has the worst guts of anybody you've ever met. Okay. I think there's a pill for it, though. Spirulina's good. Okay, good. But we would go behind... <laughs> we, would, we would go behind this, the little counter there, and, and right before we had to roll it out, he said, yo, I got my next thing. And I was like, you mean the next thing you're writing? He's like, yeah. I was like, oh, that's great. What is it? Inside monologue, what are you writing for me? Uh, it's about the Treasury Secretary. Whoop, gotta go. <laughs> Treasury Secretary. Now, we're all at the, t- at, the, at the time that we're doing it in the Heights, we're all reading Team of Rivals. You know, we're all history junkies anyway. But Is that true? Yeah, Even, yeah. We, okay. were, we had like a little book club. We couldn't read it fast enough. It was, it was awesome. But then a few days later, I'm walking across the stage and Tommy approaches and he's like, what's up, G-dubs? Because everything is shorthand, but the shorthand happens when I'm not in the room, and then I have to be the one that catches up. G-dubs. What are you talking about, G-dub? G- what? G-W. George Washington. You're going to be George Washington. Lynn's writing a thing. It's a thing. <sighs> okay. Have a good show. That's what, that's what the conversation was. So that was the moment where I was cast in the show. Um, <laughs> and I ran out that night, grabbed Chernow's biography of Washington, and poured through it. I, if I started, picked it up tomorrow, I'd be reading this for the seventh time. Wow. It was kind of my Bible while I was, um, de- when we were developing and it was all in the process of it. That's what I was going to ask because the, the PBS documentary, one of the things I loved about it was seeing how much research you all did for these roles. And I was yeah. curious, were you writing your own work before Hamilton or was, were you inspired in part you know, doing all the research for no, this role. No, I, I have, it, full disclosure, like being around Lynn Miranda makes you want to create stuff because he's just, he is a, he's just a dynamic kind of person. Being in Freestyle Love Supreme and you're creating stuff every second while you're on a stage or in rehearsal, like you just can't help. You're looking for opportunities and places to kind of, to create things for. Our freestyle show is just sort of, it, it, it's like you're planting a million seeds and at any point, any one of them could break the surface of the ground and sprout into something beautiful. But I, I was always a songwriter, but I never really considered, I had never made any money doing that. You know, I'd never, you know, had a, had a, a job where I could, you know, get a call, get an email, break down uh, and write a song about Silent E. Yes. 
right? We, we, I, if you go back to the James Monroe Iglehart episode on the Employee of the Month podcast, you can um, hear him yeah, performing Silent yeah. E. And I'm not so sure that I even knew at the time what Silent E was because I sucked in English, but I learned a whole lot while I was writing an educational TV show. On that note, I would love to hear a little from Freestyle of Supreme for those of you who have not had the... Pl- How many people have, have heard or seen Freestyle of Supreme? They had a TV show for a while, or maybe you've been to Employee of the Month before and gotten to see them rapping. But we've never gotten to see it with the Emmy Award winner, Chris Jackson. Daytime. 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 <laughs> um, would, would that be cool if you guys played a little bit? If you guys did some stuff? Let's do it. Yeah, let's, uh, let's move these chairs back All a little right. bit. I mean, we didn't rehearse, Dual house, housekeeping, okay. So, for those of y'all who don't know, Freestyle of Supreme is a fully improvised hip-hop show. Fully. Um, and we're just going to do a little, uh, one little snippet of one. Uh, we're going to do a song that we call True. And uh, what that takes is, all of the songs take audience participation. So, if you guys are here to give us energy and a word. Yeah. Ready? Okay, cool. So this is actually a pretty easy prompt. Um, all we need is one word from you guys, and you can shout them out, and we'll just pick one. Uh, how about something you can't live without? Cheese. <laughs> I'm going to go. Water. Yep, I hear. Cheese. Vodka. Yeah, everybody needs vodka to survive, right? Especially these days. Yeah, food, no doubt. Oh, man, dry humping. I mean, you can veto any of these, but that sounds um, pretty rich. Um, um, um. Let's keep going. What else we got? We got... Ezra Klein. Hope. I mean, hope sounds pretty sweet. Uh, I like a lo- all of these. Hope, cheese, dry humping. Any of the, you gravitating towards any of those? What was it? Unibrow. Oh, wow. How about hope? Let's, let's, hope. let's keep it. I mean, not to say that unibrows won't come up. Who knows? Uh, or dry humping it. Exactly, because this song has never been played before. And, uh, oh, everything you're about to hear is true. about hope when I look back growing up as a kid was I dope nope not at all I was very very chubby in fact uh, my mama was the one plus my buddies who called me jelly donut for a reason because I was basically bleeding uh, jelly filling out myself I was loving I had a sweet tooth and if you need proof you can see my fourth grade picture that had four chins because it took a picture from this side and this side and put it in the back. You remember the picture that they took like that? But I had two chins here and I had two chins here and when I stepped in the room all the girls disappeared but uh, 
And then I got braces upon my faces, and I say faces is plural because of the thing I just said to you. Uh, and then uh, I got to high school, and I was raised in rural Maine, and man, it was uh, insane going to the big city of Waterville where Colby College was. It was still just a whole bunch of white trash duds in that school too, but they looked down on us kids from rural Maine, China. Um, and there was no way that I would get vagina. In fact, it's way before I was even thinking about that. I just wanted to not be so whack and maybe get a kiss and kiss back. Uh, but one thing I did have was hope. And the fact was it came straight from my mother, not the Pope. But she was a Catholic nun way back in the day. And we took uh, plenty of time in the morning and nights to pray. And uh, when I had uh, moments of dismay, uh, she'd kind of sit me down, pat my cheek, and she would say, she'd be like, you're beautiful. Whether you have a unibrow or two brows or three brows or four chins, and you're going to get handsomer, I promise you, because puberty is awkward. Just learn to really talk words well and write and bring music up in front. Creativity will be something that turns some lady on. Eventually, you'll have more friends than you have now. And damn, she's right. So I'm glad I was like, wow, hope, yeah. Hope, hope. When you were down on yourself, your mom was like, nope. You gotta have hope. You gotta have hope. Gotta have hope. Gotta have Gotta have, gotta have. Okay. I went to the girl in the, my English class one day. Her name was Afrika Hollis. Afrika Hollis. Spelled A F R E E K Hollis. Ooh, she was fine. 11th grade, I just had to make her mine. You know what happens every spring uh, A little dance, you get your stressed up kind of thing Get your car or your uncle's car in fact And you make sure that you wash it down and wax it back And the armor all, all the tires Oh, they spinning, yeah, they spinning Well, fast forward to a Friday afternoon And I had to make my move, so I Straightened up my unibrow I said the time is now So I said Shawana, excuse me And Chrissy and Mia Real names Y'all please step aside Not playing no games Afrika, can I have a word with you? Uh, I really want to know If you'd like to go to the prom with me Corvette for about five hours in. I forget, but I said, hey, we'll get the tux. We don't need a limo. It's Carroll, Illinois, and it's really more simple. We go to the prom, sweat our behinds off in a hot-ass gymnasium for about three hours. Then we'll hook up at the spot. Everybody's playing hot, and we'll dance the night away. She smiled. She was always polite. Her friends were watching. I was a sight. Started sweating in the, seemed like for the first time in my life. I said, man, oh man, what's she gonna say? She said, Chris, 
You so silly. You ain't serious. Boy, stop. And walked away. Walked away. Now, mind you, the school's really not that big in rural southern Illinois. Not that big. I'm talking about 69 people in my graduating class. That, that kind of big. Not big. That means you will be reminded of every awkward moment that you have had in public. Oh, always right in front of you. No one's ever letting go. Always there reminding you. Get out of school fast enough. My mama was a teacher there. I went into a room. I said, Mom, I just had a really embarrassing moment. I don't think I can go the rest of the day. I need to break out. Can you give me a hall pass so I can leave? She saw the look on my face, the sweat that was pouring out of my, my head and the quiver in my lip. She let me go. It was, you know. And I got home. Canceled the tux. Didn't need the corsage, saved the 25 bucks. That Saturday, went to my uncle's house and I got the Corvette. Oh, the night wasn't done yet. Hopped in the ride and I threw on Snoop Dogg and a little Dr. Trey. I wasn't feeling no fog, I was gone. Fastest that I ever drove in my life. Went to the first rated R movie I ever saw in my life. Guess what it was? CB4. You don't get the irony of that, so now I get paid to rap. But it was CB4, never seen it before. I had that car out and I was headed out the door. 15 years later, win a daytime Emmy. <laughs> Kinda crazy. Africa is my friend, no doubt. And I'm just glad that I've had a little time to figure out. And I hope that if you're listening and you went through something like it, just hold on to that hope, cause you might just find a way overcoming all the ill little moments that will make you feel so, so small. And just remember, at the end of the day, that it happens to us all up top. That's hope. That's hope. Uh, story. Oh, no problem for me, but I. We have some gifts first for Chris. We can't, we can't miss we them. We can't miss them. I, because I wanted to say one thing also. Chris, you are part of a wonderful nonprofit that I just wanted to mention. Oh, yes. 
So my beautiful boy is 13, and he is autistic, and he is the most amazing thing in the world, and, and there are so many, many, many children out there like him. Culture City is an organization that I and my wife work with and do a lot of uh, uh, advocacy on behalf of. We basically go into public spaces and build sensory rooms. So for, for soldiers who are suffering through PTSD, for children who are autistic or who have sensory disorder uh, needs, we build these rooms so that they can go and chill, but they can still come out into the world, interact with the world, and take part in a baseball game, a football game, a basketball game, a concert, or a zoo, or even a library, as crazy as that may sound. We are growing. We have a mobile disaster unit that we're building, multiple units for people who are, uh, for communities that are dealing with like hurricanes and forest fires and people who are displaced. My son only eats rice and beans every night for dinner. Like, only rice and beans. But if our house was destroyed, we want to be able to provide something like that for all of these families that have been displaced with the hurricanes that seem to come every year, tornadoes, things like that. We're doing amazing work. We're about to go national in a very, very big way, and we need your help. So uh, follow me on Twitter. I will be blasting all of it for you if you, any of you uh, need to contact us for anything or want to donate money. That's my spiel. such a delight and talent and I know that you are writing some stuff so I wanted to get you a book on organized labor and the black worker I don't know if you've read this and then also I don't know how much you like graphic novels but Brian Vaughn who did a wide last man recommended tenements towers and trash and unconventional illustrated history of New York City by Julia Wirtz and Russ and Daughters our wonderful sponsor brought you tons of babka as well as me giving you a notebook to keep writing yay thank um, you on that note, I want to thank you, Mr. Chris Jackson. You deserve many Emmys, whether they are daytime or nighttime. So excited to be here with Selena Sue for two reasons. I'm doubly excited. One is she has her debut poetry collection, uh, Landia, L-A-N-D-I-A, which I strongly encourage you to check out. It's been deemed the future of English poetry by one critic. She's been featured in N Plus One, Harper's, PBS, NPR, WNYC, and The Nation. And I'm also thrilled to have her because she is a professor of urban studies and political science at CUNY. She's the author of Streetwise for Book Smarts, Grassroots Organizing and Education Reform in the Bronx, as well as Our Schools Suck, Youth Talk Back to a Segregation Nation. And if you hear some delightful little noises in the background, that is because her three-month-old daughter, Astra, is also here making her debut on uh, the podcasting scene. So if you hear some some noises in the background, that's Astra. Selena, welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. It's such a delight and a pleasure and an honor. Aww. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. I, I am going to ask one question out of the get-go because you're, you know, grew up in Brazil and then the U.S. You're of Chinese descent and yet you went to Thailand. You co-founded the Burmese Refugee Project, which goes by Kwa Dao. Yes. And... Um, a lot of your poetry talks about your time there. I mean, some of your poetry refers to topography, but I, I loved reading Route 1095 and talking about all these different identities you have and then having all these identities that other people project onto you in a completely different environment from the U.S. Is it your passport? Is it uh, the fact that you can get grants? Is it that you're an aid worker? You clearly are Asian, yet are you American? You're not from here. Can you talk a little bit about your experience when you're writing about yourself? Sure. So a lot of my poetry ends up featuring stories that 
continue to haunt me even after the experience ends or contradictory experiences that don't fit into neat theoretical models that are more appropriate for my research. And in my research, I get to work with lots of communities, um, especially social justice campaigns and other groups that organize for different sorts of community development. But the the organization in Thailand, I stumbled upon without doing research with the community. And so it was an odd place to end up spending several months out of the year for over a decade. Yeah. And the poem that you're talking about, I didn't think of it in terms of what academics sometimes call positionality, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily your official position as if they were strict universal coordinates so much as your position in relation to the others around you. But that ended up being a lot of what I thought about all the time, just how differently I was perceived there than I am here and how differently I navigated even just everyday life there. And it's really necessary, I feel, to help us become a little bit more self-aware and and also for me to have some humility when I go as the supposed expert, because I have a PhD, to talk with and work with folks who don't have the sort of official technical knowledge that I have, but perhaps have different sorts of knowledge that are also really valuable and necessary for social justice work and for my research. That said, I don't want to romanticize any type of knowledge, but I guess a lot of my poems, including Route 1095, the one that you mentioned, end up being about different ways of knowing also and how we struggle with figuring out how we can really be sure about what we think we know. One of the other things I really enjoy about your poetry, and I confess that I, I am a, a novice when it comes to poetry, but what I, I loved notes on the shape of absence in, in part because you really delve into sort of the blurry gray nuance of real life. And you, of course, taught me the phrase horse, horse, tiger, tiger, you know, and being sort of neither here nor there. And I, I found your poetry to be rather a cathartic and therapeutic at this time because that seems to be the one thing that is missing is sort of the so-so aspect of of life and, and that we should look at it from the lens of, of the gray. So I like the fact that you like horse, horse, tiger, tiger. For whatever reason, I, I collect phrases for things that are so-so, are sort of meh, mediocre in lots of different languages. And I noticed that a lot of them are compound ones. So so-so is compound, Horse, horse, tiger, tiger comes from mama, who, who in Mandarin, which means horse, horse, tiger, tiger. And I don't know what the etymology of that is. And in Thai, and I'm going to, I'm sorry, totally mispronounce this. I found out that there's a different set of animals for the same meaning. So nu, nu, blah, blah, snake, snake, fish, fish. And, but my favorite is not a compound one. It's 
my Ben Saparo, it's not pineapple because pineapples are fucking awesome. How was your day? And not pineapple. Um, what language is that one in? That one is in Thai. So it's not, obviously, it's not just that I like mediocre things, but I do feel some kinship with things, people, entities, spirits, whatever they are that don't fit into neat categories that are liminal or marginal and transcend or subvert official boxes. And often these sorts of things get deemed mediocre. And I like to take a double take. In your work as a professor and as a poet, you look at sort of the complexities. Yet at the same time, what's interesting to me is poetry is so precise, particularly yours. There is, uh, you know, you really play with white space and you play with grammar and trail off, you know, almost mischievously so at times. And so it's sort of interesting because the content is, you know, even the Landia as the title is, of course, playing off the feminine of the, you know, the Roman Landia versus, you know, U.S. or or I for plural. Or, But it's just interesting to me that, like, you seem to really thrive looking at the complexities and you're looking at it from two different lenses in academia. You, you know, everything has to be so detail-oriented and preface everything, and it's for a very niche audience on one end and then on the other. And poetry is for a very niche audience, but is exquisitely precise. Well, I feel like that's a very generous, wonderful take, and I'm so happy to hear that you feel that way because part of the complexity also stems from me not knowing what's going on and struggling with contradictions and thorny issues or knots in what I experience and what I observe. And so a lot of the white space on the page or the the M dashes or ellipses, they they come from me not having the full answer and asking some questions or putting in some of the silences that I hear as well. I really wanted to ask you about political organizing. You teach at CUNY, so you have students who, you know, have full-time jobs. You have, uh, I imagine, an exceptionally diverse student body that you you teach. What are your tips for organizing? Because I think that what's hard for so many people who are becoming socially active and, and, and really waking up to politics is that it there is a long game that one needs to play. And it can be exhausting, you know, doing a lot of marches and volunteering and, and different efforts. What have you learned from your research that you feel is important for political organizers? Well, speaking as someone who is a researcher and not an organizer, some of the things I've learned, I don't know how hard they are to implement since I'm not the practitioner here, but um, I would say some of the tips include just always thinking about different scales of analysis at the same time. So thinking about the campaign, but also thinking about the individual. More recently, this this discourse on self-care is perhaps useful, since otherwise we just get lots of burnout amongst organizers and amongst the folks that we're trying to mobilize. So we have to focus on the medium term rather than the short term, and we have to focus on the root causes of the systems of oppression, say, or the policies that we're trying to fight, as well as whatever this next campaign victory is. And finding that balance 
is so difficult and and really necessary because you need some short-term victories just to keep going, but you also need to keep your eyes on the prize. Otherwise, we end up becoming focused on individuals. And in the end, we're not fighting individual villains. We're fighting the circumstances and the systems that made them so powerful. And it is very hard. You know, I, I feel, look, I'm I'm terrified of losing health care. And it, it adds this element of feeling like you need to race to something. But you're so right that ultimately these questions are so much more complex than just blaming one human and saying he's bad. Uh, if we just get rid of that one person, I think you have to roofie the entire uh, executive branches. I don't think you have to go across. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I, I also wanted to ask you, you know, in your poetry, you sort of look at how language fails us. And of course, in academia, you can look at all the way that uh, systems fail us. I was curious for you, what do you get out of the poetry that you don't get out of your day job? So I really get so much out of poetry that I don't get out of my day job. I really think of poetry as a different mode of inquiry and a different way of knowing and not just as a mode of dissemination of a different way of just saying something I've already concluded. So, um, and apologies for the baby. But getting to write in a different way that includes incomplete sentences that really plays off words and gives emphasis to prismatic interpretations of what's going on so that there's no one thesis statement. Right, it's nonlinear. Really helps me to think differently about what is going on around me and to think about different scales at once, to think about the individual, the community, the Ah. nation, and global affairs at the same time, to think about the personal and get to talk a little bit, even about how different personal experiences of loss, for instance, might be intersecting with how I perceive gentrification. I don't necessarily write confessional poetry, but of course, my personal experiences affect how I think. And these sorts of... Well, because you embody the American dream, right? Your family came here from Brazil. And, you know, now you're a tenured professor. And even if Crazy Rich Asians, the the character who is a tenured <laughs> professor at NYU, is is not seen as, as, you know, making money and therefore hasn't succeeded, of course, here, you really do embody the American dream. In some ways, if you were to not know what my real life was yes. like and yes. how much luck I had. And how much hard work went into it as well. Hard work, also a lot of luck also being perceived a certain way because I was perceived as part of the model minority. I think I would have had a very different, harder time if I had, for instance, a different complexion. And I, when I was in sixth grade, I, not speaking very much English or not speaking fluent English, asked the vice principal if I could be placed in a higher math level, and I was, with no <laughs> evidence whatsoever that I could do it. I'm not sure that if I had a different complexion or a different 
racial background that the vice principal would have just abided by my request just like that. So interesting because you've, you've come into all of these different areas, like you spoke about being in Thailand for, you know, over a decade working there and coming to the States and you speak Spanish fluently and, and you're so... Your ability to use language as a paintbrush is such a, a, a beautiful art that I'm I'm not a big poetry fan and I just adore your poetry. And I, I really am so impressed by your dexterity with languages. How important is grammar and syntax for a poet? Because you seem to really know where to put the commas. So all of that is hilarious to me because I wasn't that much of a reader or an honor student until I moved to the U.S. And I don't think that I would have become so interested in language had it not become so instrumental in my efforts to fit in and to navigate life here. And I am annoying about grammar because I learned, at least in English, because I learned it somewhat artificially in middle school rather than learning it a little bit more organically from when I was younger. I love the idea that people learned it organically. You you mentioned that you're not on the streets organizing, you know, that you're doing research, that you're an academic and, and that you're not really I don't know. It's sort of part. It's not my full-time job, but I do think that all of us can be thinkers and doers and that a lot of the the learning I've done comes from the organizers and the the organizers I've worked with so many of them have been so thoughtful also and have appreciated talking to me to really take a step back and think about what's worked and what hasn't which experiences they've had reflect longer historical trends and which ones feel unique to their experience and how to learn from the past. So this constant recalibration, these many iterations of doing and learning and thinking again and again and trying and trying again is something that I think we can only do together. Well, I want to thank you so much, Selena. I really hope you don't quit your day job or your side hustle. And I love referring to poetry as a side hustle, obviously a very lucrative field. And that's why (laughs) most poets go into it is for the money. But I'm so I'm so delighted to have you here in Ostro. Thank you so much. Do you have any comments? I think she made some comments that we're going to edit <laughs> out. <laughs> um, I want to encourage everyone to please check out Landia. You can get it at small indie bookstores as well as on Amazon. And I also really, for anyone who's interested in social activism, political activism, or education, uh, Streetwise for Book Smarts, Grassroots Organizing and Education Reform in the Bronx, as well as Our School's suck. Youth talk back to a segregation nation. I wish that those books were irrelevant and didn't matter anymore. And unfortunately, they still very much do. You can also go to selinasue.net. The N-E-T is for classic old school. uh, C-E-L-I-N-A-S-U dot net. Thank you so much, Selena Sue. And thank you for being an employee of the month. Thank you so much for having me. And Astra, our youngest employee of the month yet. (laughs) (laughs) that's it for this episode of employee of the month i am so thankful to freestyle love supreme 
Arthur Lewis, Andrew Bancroft, who is my intern's intern, my intern, Chris Sullivan, as well as Chris Jackson. You can see so many of these guys live when Freestyle Love Supreme starts their off-Broadway run in January. And you can see them sooner at the Bell House, December 1st, Saturday, December 1st. Doors open at 7 o'clock. You can go to employeeofthemonthshow.com. You can go to slate.com or just go straight to the Bell House and get your tickets. And I really want to do a big shout-out to the Kennedy Center, DC Comedy Festival, as well as Jessamine Molly and Josh Rogeson, who was so wonderful and joined me at the Kennedy Center to record the episode. This is a labor of love, and I'm so thrilled to all of the people who helped make it possible and to all of you who listen. If you enjoy it, please leave us a great recommendation on iTunes. And thank you to Selena Sue and Chris Jackson, as well as Ostra. Have a good one. It just so happens to be Christopher Jackson. Talented, genuine friend is evident. Make some noise if you wish he was our real president. Whether hair, no hair, eyebrow or two, we'll forever have respect and love for you. So everybody hold those flags up. This is the employee of the month. Rip, wrap up. All right. Drink your drink, spark your blunts, and give it up for the employee.